Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. We're going to be in uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and I'll just be honest with you guys this morning. Uh, there's a lot of ground to cover, and so we're going to get started here pretty quickly. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, um, and let me, let me pray for us, and we're going to get started here. Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful morning where we can gather and we can worship, and, and we come here... Uh, Father, just uh, being expectant, but also contemplating who it is that you are, uh, who it is that we're worshiping, thinking about um, you, the God that is, the living God, but also the Savior uh, that was risen on our behalf. Father, I pray that this would be a fountain of joy, a source of joy for us, and yet it would also be weighty and serious at the same time with a sense of reverence. Uh, that we get to come here and we get to worship you. So, Father, I pray, for the, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that uh, we've not done so with reverence and with joy, that we've just gone through the motions. I pray that this morning would not be one of those times that we would worship through song, that we would worship through giving, that we would worship through the hearing and receiving of your word, and we would worship through the response to that word. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're continuing our series this morning uh, going through uh, Philippians. We've called this Contagious Joy, and that's because uh, Paul is in prison at this time when he's writing. And yet this letter, this prison epistle, as some call it, uh, is just filled with joy. That's the main theme as you go through this letter. He's talking about their joy and his joy and fulfilling joy and this idea that you can have that kind of joy in a situation like Paul finds himself in is just incredible. And so we're spending our series opening up how this can be the case. And even in the times in this series and in, in Philippians where joy is not explicitly talked about, it's implicitly talked about. We find it in both ways. This morning, Paul brings to his readers this beautiful picture of the humility of Christ and the way that, that Christ's humility is a fountain of joy for us. It's a source Right? It's where we go to get it is Christ. That's the, we go to the foot of the cross to find our joy. If we're searching for it anywhere else in the world, we will come up short. We might find something uh, like happiness that is somewhat fleeting. But we, if we want joy, if we want something that's robust and that has roots and that can't be shaken or taken away from us, we go to Christ. And that's what Paul has done as he's writing this letter. Like I've said through uh, previous sermons in this series, uh, Paul is, uh, is exceptionally loving and kind in this letter. You get the sense that this church is, is one that he's just in love with, right? That he has so, many, so much affection for that we don't see harsh rebukes for conduct or bad theology in this letter. Like you would go if you went to First and Second Corinthians. Uh, that was like, you know, Christians gone crazy in First and Second Corinthians. And Paul is correcting those things. If you go to Galatians, there's bad theology and people trying to confuse them. And Paul is correcting and rebuking those things. And here we see this kind of joyful farewell. And that's what we've been calling it. That Paul knows his time is drawing near. He's likely to be martyred soon for his faith. And so he's saying uh, kind of the last words to this church that he loves very much. But 
What we do see is him pleading with the Philippian church for certain things. We see this earnestness from Paul to pursue things like unity, like a, a life worthy of the gospel. And today, humility is going to be one of the next things that he encourages them and pleads with them for. Not so much as a correction, but as a stay the course kind of an attitude. You know, one of the worst experiences for people who are still um, young in the faith, uh, who, are, who are new Christians, um, would be witnessing a leader that they've loved and trusted uh, fall, right? Make, make a serious moral error, uh, fall and backslide or whatever the case may be. A few years ago, there was a world-famous apologist, uh, someone that I definitely uh, uh, drew a lot of uh, help from, great resources, um, and uh, the, the apologist, he ended up getting diagnosed with cancer, and he knew that his time was short. He taught and he preached and he wrote tons of books and he had lots of helpful content on the internet. Uh, he did lots of helpful debates with, with non-Christian scholars and atheists and leaders of other religions. And he did all these things. When he passed away from cancer a few years ago, um, the Christian world kind of erupted in celebration for him. There was a hashtag that went viral that said thank you with his name. Uh, there was people making tribute videos. There was all kinds of things that were, that were going on. The world just kind of erupted because he had had such an impact on so many people. And, and outwardly was just this kind of picture of Christian maturity and humility and conduct. But then after a few months from his death and after all of the celebrations the news broke that this man had a lot of dark secrets. That he wasn't living exactly like we had all thought that he was living. And it turned out um, that he, he actually secretly owned massage parlors that his uh, ministry was completely unaware of. Uh, Third-party investigations, um, they confirmed all of the allegations that came out after his death. So it wasn't just hearsay. It wasn't just uh, gossip or anything like that. The woman who actually uh, blew the whistle on all of it said that when uh, he would come to the massage parlor, he would tell the women working there. By the way, he, he had done this for years, maybe decades, uh, committing adultery on his wife through the owner owning of this massage parlor. Um, the woman who, who blew the whistle on this, she said that when he would come there, he would tell the other women working there, I'm a man of God. And my burden is very heavy, and that is why I deserve to indulge in this way. <laughs> and that was his rationale for his, for his secret life and the way, that, the way that he was living. Again, this was a man who gave this wonderful outward appearance of faith, right, and humility. And, and that was the word that came up so many times when people were celebrating his life as he was dying. There's like just, just the humble attitude Right, that he could disagree with people, and he could um, he could bring their arguments to their knees in a way that was full of humility. That was what people loved so much about him. And yet, what we see is that is that on the inside, this was a man who he never heeded the warnings in the pleading of Paul and Philippians to adopt the same attitude as Christ, which is humility. He gave the picture of it. He gave, he gave this uh, mask to the world, but what was going on underneath was much darker. And what we're going to do is we're going to circle back around to that story at the end. But for just a moment now, I want us to consider the difference between a man like that and a man 
like Paul, and, and really even infinitely more so the difference between that man's attitude and that of Jesus Christ. Right? Because Paul would want us to first look to Christ if he was here talking to us now. He wouldn't want us to first look to his example. But really, as, as Paul seeks after Christ, we can follow Paul. And what we see is that uh, Paul and, and Jesus, they're, they're both men of integrity. They're both men willing uh, in, in humility to lay down their life for something bigger than themselves, for other people, people that don't even necessarily love them back in the moment. And so we're going to read our passage this morning. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 says, If then there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so before we get to our application, before we get to our, our points, you could say, for this morning, there's some theology that has to be discussed from this passage. This is one of the central passages from the New Testament when it comes to Christology, the doctrine of who Jesus is, right? What we know to be true about him, what was being confessed in the early church, what the apostles believed about Jesus. We get this beautiful picture of it from this passage, Again, Christology is the doctrine of who Jesus is. Christ is the Greek version of Messiah or anointed one. It's not his last name, as some have often mistaken it to be. When we say Jesus Christ, we are not saying uh, his first and last name. We're saying his name and his title. Right? Who, Who he is, not his name. What he does for us, not his name. Uh, Christology is a first-tier issue. This isn't something that we can get wrong. This is something where if you fall outside of bounds on who Jesus is, it's the difference between getting the gospel right or getting it wrong. It's the difference between being a Christian or not. We have to answer, well, who is it that Jesus Christ was and is? This is something that we have to spend a few moments talking about. So in verse 6, it says, Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. The idea of existing points to his pre-incarnation, before he came in the flesh to the earth. That is, before he took the form of man, he already existed as God. Christ is uncreated and has eternally existed. Verse 7, it says, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of Humanity. Now, this is a tricky verse that we have to be careful with, where many uh, individuals and religious groups have fallen into error right here in this verse. It says, He emptied himself of the rights and royal treatments that came with being the king of the universe. He did not empty himself of any of his godhood or deity. Right? He emptied himself of what was rightfully his, not of what he was. 
And it may seem like splitting hairs, but it's incredibly important that we maintain that Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God. Because if he's only one or the other, he's not the savior that we needed and he didn't accomplish anything for us. That's why Christology is so important. It's a first tier issue that we will die on this hill. The Jesus that came to earth and lived a sinless life was and is 100% God. He condescended himself to become a man without losing any measure of his divine nature. This was addition by subtraction. And this will take a lot of chewing on more than you're going to probably be able to do in this sermon because I'm still chewing on it and I've spent a lot of time working through these things. But they, they're called parallel truths in Scripture. Right? They may appear as contradictions, but they're not. The Scriptures say that he is both 100% man and 100% God. And both of these are true at the same time. They're truths that run parallel to each other. So he was 100% God, but also, as verse 8 states, he came fully as man. He had to be fully God in order to be the perfect sinless sacrifice and also the eternality of his nature was necessary in order to exhaust the eternal wrath of God against human sin. He had to be 100% man to truly represent mankind dying in our place as our substitute, being the greater second Adam, restoring what the first Adam destroyed. So we need his godhood to exhaust the wrath of God that would have been eternally present against sin. And that's a mystery all wrapped up in itself. How can can eternal wrath be exhausted? Well, somehow, with the eternal God being sacrificed for the sins of man, that happens. And that's what the Bible communicates to us. He had to be a man because otherwise it wouldn't have worked. He wouldn't have been a substitute in our place. See, the Old Testament sacrifices, they were pointing toward the real, needed, eternal sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that once and for all this was done for us, that no longer a sacrifice is necessary. We needed that perfect man, that sinless man, to eternally exhaust God's wrath for us on our behalf. He was our substitute. And so here in a nutshell, we have the orthodox, historic, apostolic, Christian understanding of who Jesus was, is, and forever will be. This has been confessed by Christians for hundreds and thousands of years. This has been settled all the way back to Paul. To deviate from this understanding that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God is to lose the gospel. It's to cease to be Christian. It's to cease to stand in a long line of faithful men and women who have passed this down to us from the apostles. And so this is incredibly important. So with that said, with that foundation laid, with that behind us, then we can move into the rest of the passage. But we can't skip over that. We had to spend time there. So one, be transmitters of joy. Verses one through four. He says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Paul says that as the Philippians are experiencers of joy... 
Right? As they've experienced all these things from Christ that kind of culminate or can be summed up in joy. He says, be transmitters of that. So you've experienced it. Now make sure that you help others experience the same thing. So similar to how a garden hose is a conduit or a channel for water, right? To flow from one side of the yard to the other. So we are to be conduits or transmitters of the joy that is found in Christ. So it flows from God through us to others. That's the idea here. When someone has really experienced the transforming power of the gospel in their, in their life, when they've experienced the goodness that is God, when they've captured some measure of truth of who he is and what he has done for them, it's obvious. You can smell it on them. There's, a, there's an aroma of, of heaven that comes with someone who's had that experience, that, that understands that kind of dro- that joy. It radiates from them. You can see it in them. And really, it's attractive. And this is how joy starts to become contagious. Paul says, make sure that the joy doesn't stop with you. Right? That you spread it everywhere that you can. That you send it to the ends of the earth. That you make sure at least it's making it to every corner of your church. Paul says the joy of Christ would come back to him like a boomerang. If you heard a report that the Philippian church is loving each other in such a way. He says, make my joy complete. Right? I've sent it out. And he's saying, I send it out. And I'm just waiting for it to come back to hear the good news that, that you've received it. And then you've sent it to others. That's what we're to do. But how are we to do that? So number two, by looking to Christ's joyful humility. Verses four and five say, everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Again, he condescended himself, and in the ultimate act of humility, he took on that which is finite, right, and set aside that which is infinite. He did this having done no wrong himself. He did this as a substitute for people who did not love him yet. Right? We're told in, in, in Scripture that, that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Some of us, when we're offended, we won't even hold the door open for the next person in line. And yet Jesus leaves heaven to die for the people that would nail him to the cross. Not only did he do that, he ensured that that tree would grow at just the right time and to just the right height so that he could be nailed to it for the people that were mocking him. That is the humility that we see of Christ. This is the example that we're supposed to be looking to. Humility means the death of something. The birth of genuine humility always means the death of something else. And it's no, no less than the death of our pride, but it's oftentimes more than that. It often goes beyond the death of pride. Humility means the death of selfishness, prioritizing ourselves, laziness, your preferences. It means the death of greed. And it could very well mean the death of your physical body, like it meant for both Paul and Christ. Paul following in the footsteps of his crucified and yet risen Savior. Christ joyfully died for the benefits of others. Think about that. He joyfully died for the benefit of others. So when Paul is saying, take on the same attitude, he's saying, take on the humility of Christ to the best of your abilities. Now, this has a very specific application that I decided to spend time on this morning. This is, this is for men. This is for husbands. And this is also from Paul's writings in Ephesians chapters, chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. 
Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. And really, our key verse there is, is verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? He, he gave himself. He gave, he gave himself up. He, he died for the church, right? He laid down all preferences. He laid down the royalty and the riches of heaven. He laid down his right to use his title as king and creator of the universe for his bride, the church. And so you hear all the time, especially younger men, right? When they're talking, they're either talking about a girl that they want to impress or they're talking to a girl that they want to impress. Like, baby, I would die for you, right? I would die for you. And the thing is, Paul, Paul and Jesus are saying like, that's the minimum requirement, Right? That, like, that's just expected of you. That's, that should be a given for a Christian man. That's not even necessarily a point that should be that impressive for Christian men. That's the default position, is to lead through humility, to lay your life down for someone else. That's what you are to do as a Christian, just like Christ did, in humility, dying for his church, his bride. So the expectation for husbands is that you would imitate Christ. In that way, I'll tell you, when I'm trying to discern the spiritual maturity of another man, one of the first things that I'll do is I'll look at the way that he interacts with his wife. I'll look at the way that he interacts with his children or even a single man, the way he interacts with women and children around him. Is he gentle with her in conduct and speech? Is he tough for her or is he tough on her? Does he have a track record of dying to himself, putting his preferences second, his wants, his needs as less important than hers? Or is he just a giant man-child constantly throwing a fit that he didn't get things his way? This is a great indicator of the maturity of a man. How does he interact with others? Does he put himself first or does he put himself last? So men, don't, don't tell me that you would that you would die for her if she doesn't even get to pick the restaurant you eat at. Right? Don't tell me that you would die for her if she doesn't get to pick what's on Netflix that night. I really think about this. And we can talk a big game, right? But if the little acts aren't there, why would we ever believe that the bigger one is? Don't talk to me about your humility until you're ready to give yourself away for the sake of others. Don't sleep in, get your family to church. Don't rush bedtime so you can get to Netflix. I'm preaching to myself right now, right? Don't rush bedtime so that you can get to Netflix. Pray with your children. Read the scriptures to your children. Put their eternity first before finishing that season, right? Like, we'll start with the small things and, and we'll work out from there. This is humility and the standard has been set by the king himself. He's asking so little of us, right, and compared to what he did. We're to follow in his attitude of humility. How does that work itself out in our lives? So why do we pursue gospel-centered humility? For the reward of eternal joy. 
the reward given to Christ that we see in Philippians chapter 2 is, his, is for his joyful humility. To, to his reward is to be exalted by the Father, given a name above every other name. He gets universal recognition of his lordship by the church in pure worship and by non-believers. And this is not universalism. He's not saying that one day all who ever existed will place their faith in Jesus. But there is a day coming when all who ever existed cannot deny who he is. And that is the distinction that is absolutely terrifying. That eventually there will be no such thing as an atheist. Even the demons believe and they tremble, is what scripture says. And yet we have people, one, that that deny the existence of God at all. Or if they do, they interact with him flippantly. Not even the demons do that. That's a terrifying place to be. So what we cannot miss in these final verses of our passage is that the reward given to Christ for his humility is also our reward. Think about this. The Father rewards him with worship, and we are rewarded with the privilege of worshiping him. All right, so every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. And some of this is going to happen in faith, and some of it is going to happen begrudgingly, right? in sin, in terror. We, as the church, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they get, they get to reap a part of his reward for what he accomplished on the cross. Because of what he did, the Father exalts him. Because of what he did, the Father puts his name above every other name. And because of what he, what he did, then we get to worship him rightly. A way has been made for that to happen. So his reward for his humility is also our reward. Like I said, every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess in either joy or terror. Verses 10 and 11. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see this universal recognition of lordship, like I said, it doesn't mean universal salvation. It means that there's coming a point where it's undeniable who Jesus is. And the time that we have now is your opportunity to respond rightly to who Jesus is in faith and with joy and in right worship. For others, the time that they see him for who he is will come after this life and it'll be too late. And that'll be the moment filled with dread and terror instead of love and joy. So if you've been, if you've been pretending, maybe for decades, maybe for a week, you've been pretending, right? You, you've had this facade of, of humility and, and kind of Christian conduct and you've been able to fool everybody. Maybe your spouse, your family, your friends, your church, your pastor, whatever the case may be. But you know that deep down that there's something wicked going on inside your heart. Maybe it's not always been there. Maybe it has always been there. But you know it's not right. And you know it's not authentic humility that you've come before the Lord with hands stretched out empty as a beggar. Saying it's all of grace. You know that you haven't had that experience in I would tell you, like, not, not to waste your time. So we get back to the story at the beginning. 
I told you earlier about a man who gave the appearance of gospel-centered life, but who never in humility accepted the reward that Jesus had purchased for him. That doesn't have to be your story this morning. Even at the level of legacy, don't leave that behind. Don't leave that, that carnage for your family. Be who you really say that you are. Live in the humility of Christ and strive towards that attitude that Paul tells us to do. You can start in humility today by bending the knee and confessing in faith. And, and unless you think that you might be getting away with something, and I fear that that was the case with this man, this, this great apologist for the faith. I think he thought he was getting away with something, and, and I wish I could talk to him. Right? But we know that once it's done, it's done. I think that there's this element that maybe we convince ourselves through our own flesh and our own convincing and maybe with some help from, from the enemy that we, we're going to get away with it. Right? That it won't really be that bad. That, that um, maybe I'll escape something after this life. It's just not the way that it is. So you have to make your choices how you're going to live. You have to make your choices on what's going on in your heart and, and what you're going to do with those things. Those are choices that, that you have to make. But either way, we're told in this passage that when every tongue confesses and every knee bows, God gets the glory in that moment whether it was in faith or in terror. And, and, and listen to the words of C.S. Lewis here. He says, You will certainly carry out God's purpose, however you act. But it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. You see, even through his sinful choices, Judas carried out God's plan. And God is going to use even the wicked things of this world and what the enemy meant for evil. And he's going to take it and he's going to use it for good. Through Judas's betrayal, Jesus is crucified and salvation is purchased. So you will not get away with anything. You will bow the knee. You will confess with your tongue at some point. So friends, if you would join me uh, back up here for worship, I would appreciate that. Um, the front is going to be open for response. Um, and maybe it's not necessarily for salvation, right? We want to create this time where, where you can respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart through the Word of God. And so if that is a moment of salvation, you're like, I, I, I am not, um, I am, I'm not authentic on the inside. And maybe that's at the deepest level where I need to, for the first time, give my life to Christ. And I need to not be the Judas. I want to be John. Right? I want to strive for the attitude like Paul says, or maybe, maybe you are saved. Maybe you have a, a great relationship with the Lord you have for many years, um, but there's just some things that have started to creep in recently. There's some things that you know uh, need to be dealt with. This time at the end of each service is also for that. And so if you're looking for prayer, for whatever the occasion may be, please uh, come and find me at the front. Father, oh man, Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. That you would grab anything that should not be there by the roots and tear it out. That you would help us to turn to you in faith now, to worship you rightly now. Don't let the world trick us and fool us and entertain us into putting this off to another time because we know that another time is not promised. Father, help our minds to center 
on the rich theology that Paul gives us here about your son. Help us to deeply consider the gospel that is given to us. That we're sinful people in need of a savior and that savior came. His name is Jesus. He died. He rose again. And by him, there is a way to be reconciled to God. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Go on peace this morning.